Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. I'm Adam Scher, your Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Always glad to see everybody virtually. Um, as always, we always want to thank our members in advance. Uh, we could not do these programs without your support. That is deeply appreciated. Um, if you haven't heard or haven't seen our website lately, we are open again. We opened on July 1st. Um, we do have new protocols, of course, uh, in place uh, due to COVID to make the museum experience uh, safe and uh, for everybody, uh, the staff, uh, as well as the public. Uh, you will have to purchase a ticket uh, in advance online. Uh, you do now have to make appointments uh, to do research in the library. Uh, but please uh, do come and see us. Uh, we have uh, two new exhibits that have just opened, uh, a landscape save the Garden Club of Virginia at 100. So this year is the centennial of the Garden Club of Virginia. Uh, and we have also just opened Mending Walls RVA, uh, which was created by uh, Richmond muralist Hamilton Glass uh, and a number of his fellow artists have uh, created new murals uh, that uh, are in response to both COVID and the recent uh, protests around the country. Um, it's a very evocative show, uh, and I hope that you will you will come see that. Uh, they are actually going to be painting live in the gallery starting tomorrow. Uh, two of the artists will be creating a, a mural before your eyes. Uh, that will be going on um, from tomorrow through Monday. Uh, so please come see that. Um, our next banner lecture will be on August 13th uh, at noon. Nicole Myers-Turner will be discussing her book, Soul Liberty, The Evolution of Black Religious Politics in Post-Emancipation, Virginia. But today we're very pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Lindsay Chavinsky. Uh, Dr. Chavinsky formerly served as an historian with the Whitehurst, White House Historical Association. Uh, she's currently a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies, senior fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies. Uh, her book, uh, The Cabinet George, of George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution was just published uh, this April by Harvard University Press. Uh, you will be able to order copies of her book uh, through our website. Uh, we're very pleased to have her today. So please welcome Dr. Lindsay Travinsky. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's uh, such a thrill to be able to share my work with you. I, of course, wish that this could be an in-person presentation, but one of the gifts of um, being able to do virtual events is that we are able to you know, reach an audience that's a little bit more broad and perhaps um, all, over, all over the world. So that, that I'm really excited about, of course, the one downside of that is I'm hoping maybe some of you have heard me talk a little bit about the cabinet already. And so it definitely uh, ups the pressure a little bit to add some new information and make this exciting and fun. And since, of course, tonight our hosts are the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, I thought what better way to focus my talk today than to talk about the Virginian cabinet experience. Um, and so it's going to be my pleasure to talk to you about the three experiences of Washington, Edmund Randolph, and Thomas Jefferson, their similarities, their relationships, how they differed, sort of their end of their cabinet careers. And then I'm also going to leave some time at the end for questions, because I do think that uh, for me, that is the most fun part. I want to know what you want to know about. So um, please uh, be sure to enter your questions as we go along. And uh, I look forward to that part at the end. So of course, no cabinet story can begin without talking about George Washington first. Um, as many of you may know, the cabinet is not actually in the constitution. In fact, the delegates to the constitutional convention explicitly rejected uh, a cabinet because they feared it would lead to cronyism, it would obscure responsibility at the highest levels of government, and they wanted to make sure they knew who to hold responsible for good or bad policies. And so instead, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention gave the president two options, and these are both 
in Article 2 of the Constitution, which I always encourage everyone to look at. And the first option was that the president could meet with the um, could request written advice from the department secretaries on issues pertaining to their departments. And this was very carefully crafted because the delegates did not want these conversations to be taking place in person. They wanted there to be a written record about who said what and who advocated which position and um, again, who they could hold responsible for those decisions. And so Washington initially really tried to comply with this advice. He was at the Constitutional Convention. He heard what the delegates had to say. He had a very clear understanding about their expectations. But it turns out that when you're exchanging letters back and forth, as we all know today with text and emails, sometimes things get lost or um, you know, uh, mixed up in translation, maybe the tone isn't clear, maybe you have follow-up questions, and so then you have to send, you know, a bunch of emails back and forth, and you end up with this giant chain. Well, now imagine trying to do that with parchment and quill, and you have to write out the letter, you have to wait for it to dry, you have to wait for it to be delivered to the person, then you have to wait for them to write out their response, and for that to dry, and then for that to be delivered. And then what happens if you have follow-up questions? So very quickly, Washington realized that this system of purely written correspondence was just not um, efficient enough and certainly not flexible enough to handle the very complex issues that were facing his administration. And so what he started doing is he would exchange a letter or two, and then he would follow that correspondence up with an in-person meeting. And this picture shows what Washington's private study looked like in Philadelphia, which is where he spent most of his presidency. And so he would have the department secretaries come and meet with him and talk about the letters that they had previously exchanged and sort of nail down any final details. And that worked for about the first two years of the administration. But if you remember, I also said that there was a second option. And the second option, um, the second option was that the president could um, meet with the Senate to advise and consent on foreign affairs. And that's very different than what we think of today when we think of the Senate that either sort of rejects treaties out of hand or just signs them over to the president. The delegates to the Constitutional Convention really expected that the president would discuss these issues with the Senate because the Senate was relatively small, it was indirectly elected, and so therefore it was a safe advisory body because they could be removed if they did something bad. And so Washington went to the Senate, he had every intention of discussing a upcoming peace commission with them, and it went very badly because they were acting like legislatures. And they wanted to discuss the issue in committee and have him come back the following week. And he got really angry because that was not what he came for. He came for immediate advice. And so Washington only went to the Senate that one time to ask for input. And so right away, there was all of a sudden this sort of reckoning that what had been provided to Washington in the Constitution simply was not going to be sufficient. So two and a half years into his presidency, and I emphasize that because a lot of people think that the cabinet was there from day one, and that was definitely not the case. Two and a half years into Washington's presidency, he convened a the first cabinet meeting on November 26, 1791. And there are his uh, four cabinet secretaries here. There's from left to right, Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of Treasury, Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State, and Edmund Randolph, who was the Attorney General. And we'll get to Edmund Randolph in a minute, but I, I do refer to him as a member of the cabinet on equal footing because even though he did not have a uh, Department of Justice like the other secretaries had a department to administer, he was really treated by everyone in the cabinet as an equal. And so I sort of honor that in the way that I discuss it as well. So once Washington decided that he was going to have a cabinet, he then had to figure out how he was going to manage it because it had never existed before and all of this was brand new. And so Washington really borrowed from his military experience during the Revolutionary War. 
He borrowed a lot of the council of war practices that had served him incredibly well as commander in chief of the Continental Army. And he used many of the same strategies to manage the sometimes very large personalities in both his councils and his cabinets. So some of the strategies he used to sort of uh, keep these people under control where he would send out a list of questions before a meeting so that they could consider the issues and come up with what they thought was the best advice. He would then use that list of questions as a sort of agenda for the meeting to try and keep everyone on point. And then if the officers or the secretaries agreed, which they often did, he would, I'm sorry, did I say agreed? I meant disagreed. Uh, they often disagreed he would ask for written opinions to um, make sure that he was getting all of the details, to make sure he understood what everyone was saying, to allow him to have time to make these decisions in sort of his own way and contemplate thoughtfully without the pressure of everyone sort of yelling in his presence. Um, and Washington also was very attentive to the social atmosphere of these various groups. He hosted balls during winter quarters during the war. He invited the officers to bring their wives. Um, and he um, really tried to build an esprit de corps among both the officers and the secretaries with uh, sort of uh, mixed, uh, mixed success. Now, the, both of these bodies, the councils of war and the cabinet, they served the same purposes. They provided political cover for controversial decisions. They provided a way for Washington to build coalitions um, or some form of consensus among his officers or secretaries. And of course they were a way to, um, to get advice and to have a better understanding of what was going on because Washington understood that he didn't always have all the answers and it was helpful to get a different perspective. Now, when we go back to this space where the cabinet meetings took place, it's important to sort of think about what the atmosphere would have been like at the time. So this room was about 15 by 21 feet. Uh, this picture doesn't do, I think, a great job of showing how stuffed full of furniture it actually would have been. There were three mahogany bookcases. There was Washington's dressing table. The desk in the corner was uh, five feet wide. There was in the far back corner, which you can't see, there was a, an iron stove to keep the room warm. And then there was this small table and chairs that were brought in temporarily during meetings when the secretaries were present. Then you have to add the five guys that came in. So Washington and the four secretaries, and they were not small dudes. So Washington was notoriously quite tall for the time. He was 6'3". Uh, Knox was about six feet and between 250 and 280 pounds, depending on the reports. Jefferson was quite tall as well. And so this room would have been very full. And Jefferson and Hamilton hated each other. They hated everything about the other person. And they would meet in this room for up to five times per week, sometimes for several hours per day in the summer without air conditioning. And Hamilton was known to pace and gesticulate wildly when he was making a point. And Jefferson took records that sometimes Hamilton would talk for 45 minutes without interruption. So you can just imagine the tension in this room and what it must have been to experience that. Now, Washington probably would have sat in the chair in the corner there with that that would have swiveled. And um, he actually, despite sort of what must have felt incredibly uncomfortable, he didn't mind the conflict. In fact, he found it to be really helpful because it was a way for him to stress test the different positions that people were putting forward. He allowed Hamilton to poke holes in Jefferson's arguments and Jefferson to poke holes in Hamilton's and, and it allowed him to sit back and try and sort of survey the entire position and figure out what choice made the most sense for the nation. So the cabinet and the way that he created it was very much to help him lead in the best way that he could. Now, Washington did not maintain the same cabinet practices throughout his administration. Um, towards the end of his presidency, I uh, affectionately call the replacements the B-team. Um, these were the secretaries that Washington put in place once Hamilton, Knox, and Jefferson retired, and then Edmund Randolph resigned. And they simply were not up to the same standards as the original cabinet. 
Washington said as much in his letters, John Adams said as much, um, Hamilton said as much. And the way that we know that they were not um, on the same level as the originals was that when Washington received the Jay Treaty in the spring of 1795, he shared it with Edmund Randolph, who was still in office at that time. And he kept it secret from the rest of the secretaries for several months before the Senate came back into session. And we know that he kept it secret because they were all writing letters about who has the information and why aren't they sharing it. And there is simply no way that he would have done that when Hamilton and Jefferson were in office. There's just no way. So towards the end of his presidency, Washington reduced the number of cabinet meetings to only a handful per year. If there was a big precedent decision he had to make, like the first time he asserted executive privilege, he did convene the cabinet to make sure he understood their perspectives. But by and large, he returned to written correspondence. He asked for Hamilton's advice, even though Hamilton was out of office. And this left a very important um, institutional rule for the cabinet, which is that the secretaries do not have a right to be a part of the decision-making process. They can offer their advice when the president asks for it, but the president is not required to take it. He's not even required to listen to it. Um, and so that was really important for his successors because every president gets to decide what their cabinet is going to look like and how they're going to operate with their uh, secretaries, how they're going to interact, who their closest advisors are going to be, whether they're going to be the vice president or the department, the secretary of state or a friend or a family member. And that is really a legacy of Washington's cabinet. So on to Edmund Randolph, who was the first attorney general and then the second secretary of state. Edmund Randolph first became close with Washington when he was an aide-de-camp during the revolution. They likely first met or first seriously interacted at the Longfellow House in Cambridge, which was where Washington's headquarters were while the army was in Boston. After, um, when, when Randolph was an aide-de-camp, he regularly attended councils of war and took notes for Washington. He helped Washington with his correspondence. So from the very beginning, he understood how Washington operated and what sort of um, input and advice he wanted and needed. After Randolph left um, his position as aide, he went back to Virginia. He studied law. He became an attorney under the Virginia Bar. He became the Virginia Attorney General, then the Virginia Governor, all the while acting as Washington's private attorney. So by the time Randolph is appointed the first attorney general, he had been friends with Washington for almost three decades, and they had had a close personal working relationship almost that entire time. And even though he didn't have a department, his advice and his expertise, especially on constitutional issues, were so valued that even people like Hamilton and, and Jefferson, who had their own legal training, would seek out Randolph to get his opinions and his perspectives on questions that came up about matters in their department. So he was a very, um, very much a trusted and valued advisor in the first cabinet. And I think it's important to emphasize that because uh, his later career kind of overshadows his contributions and people tend to not remember him quite as much. Um, so this is just a, another picture of the cabinet and uh, just emphasizes that he was very much on equal standing in Washington's eyes and on equal standing when it came to his compatriots. Now, Jefferson didn't really see it that way. One of my favorite letters that I ever found, uh, of course, I wasn't the one to discover it, a, a librarian and then the Papers Projects did a wonderful job catalog cataloging it. Um, but Jefferson wrote this letter back to Madison and he's describing the cabinet meetings and he says that usually the cabinet split two and a half to one and a half. And um, he blames Randolph for this split because Randolph, according to Jefferson, was so wishy-washy that he could never make up his mind and constantly go back and forth between Jefferson and then Hamilton and Knox. I don't really think that's a fair assessment. Randolph really saw himself as an unbiased participant. He really tried to stay out of partisan factions and he tried to view things objectively, which meant that sometimes he did side with Hamilton and Knox and sometimes he sided with Jefferson. And Jefferson as the sort of 
um, unofficial leader of the growing Jeffersonian Republican Party expected that Randolph would side with him and sort of resented that that loyalty wasn't there. So I just like to push back on Jefferson's version of cabinet history a little bit. Now, Randolph really took off in importance um, starting in 1794. Jefferson retired as Secretary of State on December 31st, 1793, and Randolph was promoted to the position um, in early 1794. So during the Whiskey Rebellion, he was an integral part of cabinet deliberations and cabinet conversations. Um, but then, as I mentioned, when it came to the Jay Treaty, that's really where we can see his role and his value to Washington. Washington decided to send uh, Chief Justice John Jay to London to negotiate a new treaty at the end of 1794, and that treaty was received in early 1795. He shared the contents with Randolph, and they decided to convene an emergency session of the Senate in order to try and ratify this treaty. And then they decided that they were going to keep it secret until they were to deliver the contents to the Senate. So they didn't show it to Oliver Wolcott Jr., who was the Secretary of the Treasury. They did not show it to Timothy Pickering, who was the Secretary of War. And they did not show it to William Bradford, who was the Attorney General. They also didn't show it to John Adams, who was the Vice President. And during this time, Randolph and Washington were basically in cahoots to discuss how they were going to try and get the treaty ratified or not, and who they should talk about with the, these issues. And so that just shows how trusted and valuable Randolph was to Washington at this point. And he really did hold the highest, um, the Secretary of State was considered the highest position in the land other than the president, maybe the vice president, but anyway, it was it was a very valued position. And so because Randolph was in that position, he was a very respected person and part of the administration. Now, unfortunately, um, later that year, a series of events occurred to sort of damage his reputation and tarnish his place in history. And it's not 100% clear what happened. And if I could choose any moment to go back in time and be a fly on the wall in the book, this would be the moment that I would choose because I would. I wish that I knew what had been said and how people felt and how people reacted. In 1794, during the midst of the Whiskey Rebellion, Randolph wrote a letter to the French minister and basically said that for a series, um, for a small amount of money, the French could influence the outcome of events. Now, what I think he meant was if the French invested in the rebels, that would change the outcome of the Whiskey Rebellion. But the way that it was reported, um, at least in the reports back to France, made it sound like maybe he was offering to sway the outcome for a bribe. Or at least that's how Pickering and Wolcott interpret it. Because Fauché, who was the French minister, wrote a report back to Paris that report was sent on a ship that was then captured by a British ship and then delivered to the British minister who then delivered it to Pickering and Wolcott. And they translated it. And I frankly think they did a very bad job translating. But because Washington didn't speak French, he relied on that translation and confronted Randolph about it and basically said, accused him of selling state secrets, accused him of treason. And he did so in front of Pickering and Wolcott. Now, in a normal sort of uh, rational way, Randolph should have explained and defended himself and shown his papers to Washington and the others, and that probably would have been solved pretty easily and pretty quickly. But um, it's important to remember that this is all taking place in the context of honor culture. And so Randolph felt that his reputation had been threatened, and that's really all he had, your reputation was your social, political, economic currency and your ability to be anyone in the world. And so he felt challenged and threatened. I think he probably also felt quite hurt that his good friend of many decades was accusing him of these things. And so he acted rashly, he resigned, and then he locked his, his work papers in his office, maybe to protect himself. I'm not totally sure what his thinking was. But either way, when he then went to write a vindication, as news about this sort of started to trickle out of the rumor mill that was Philadelphia at the time, 
he didn't have his papers. And so he asked for them and, and maybe some of them got waylaid in the mail. Maybe it's possible that Pickering didn't send them as quickly as he said. But either way, Randolph began to feel that his reputation was, was sinking and Washington was not helping him. And so he published a series of their letters back and forth. And there was no way faster to get Washington to turn against you than if you published your correspondence with him. And so that ended their relationship and they never spoke again, which is an incredibly sad way to end this long and really esteemed partnership. Um, Randolph did go back to Virginia. He was an attorney for, for many more years and was sort of uh, respected on the local level, but never again became a public figure in the same way. So lastly, Thomas Jefferson. Um, Thomas Jefferson perhaps had one of the most unique experiences. Um, I think it's helpful to sort of first explain why um, Washington selected him as his Secretary of State, because although they did know each other, they didn't have as close of a personal relationship as Washington had with Hamilton, Knox, and Randolph. Um, Jefferson was in the Continental Congress. He, of course, was the most famous author of the Declaration of Independence, pictured here with his committee. So he was really known nationally for his intellect and his regard. He then became the um, one of the ministers uh, in the peace process and then the minister to France. And the little house there, well, it's not little. In this picture, it's little, but the house itself was quite large. On the In the left front corner was where he would have lived in Paris. And he really loved his time as minister to France. And so when Washington was thinking about who should be his secretary of state, he understood that he needed someone that had diplomatic experience. Washington had never been abroad other than one trip to Barbados as a teenager. So he didn't know how um, Versailles or the Court of St. James worked. He didn't know what sort of practices were considered, you know, best practice for diplomacy in Europe. And so he needed someone who knew that world, who had experience in it, and who spoke French, because again, he did not, and that was the language of diplomacy. And Madison, who was one of Washington's close friends at the time, really vouched for Jefferson and encouraged Washington to make this choice. So when Jefferson was in the cabinet as Secretary of State, um, his role is sometimes considered to be that of um, like an internal enemy, like he was pushing back against the administration. And while he certainly disagreed with many of Washington's choices, and he later came to feel that the cabinet um, and the administration had really been captured by Hamilton and Washington was blind to Hamilton's intrigues, Initially, Jefferson was a really strong advocate for executive power. In 1790, when Congress was sort of creating the diplomatic establishment and coming up with how much money they would give to the president to create positions that were ambassadors and ministers and consuls, they, they sort of initially came up with a small sum. And Jefferson and Washington felt that that was inappropriate because it would limit the appointments that Washington was able to make. And Jefferson advocated, he testified in front of a committee that more money needed to be appointed so that the president had the authority to craft foreign policy unobstructed by Congress. Similarly, when the neutrality crisis broke out in early 1793, when France declared war on Great Britain and the French sent a new minister, um, citizen Edmund Charles Genet, and he really insisted that the United States needed to join the war on France's behalf, Jefferson pushed back against that. He defended the president's right to determine diplomacy and its the nation's foreign policy. He said that it wasn't Congress's responsibility. He um, tried to constantly lecture Genet on the constitutional balance of power and convince him that, the, that Washington and the president was in the right here. And um, so I think that those contributions are really important because he wasn't just an anti-executive power person. He believed strongly that the nation needed a powerful executive and pushed for it, not so that he would have more power as secretary of state, but so that the president would be able to be more effective. Now, that being said, um, he hated his time in Washington's cabinet. Um, I already mentioned that he had a very poor relationship with Alexander Hamilton, and they 
had really um, divergent views on everything. So um, Jefferson was pro-French and Hamilton was pro-England or pro-Britain. Um, Jefferson believed that the nation should really be a country of human farmers that could be independent and take care of themselves on their own family farms. Whereas Hamilton prioritized the merchant trade and cities and industrialization and industry. Um, and then also the ways in which they presented themselves were completely different forms of masculinity and virtuous republicanism. And this is little r republicanism. So Jefferson had spent the previous several years in Europe in um, the highest you know, courts of the land. Um, diplomacy is generally fueled by fine wine and dining. And if you come to blows or are yelling and angry, then you've done something wrong. Whereas Hamilton had spent the war years literally in battle or in Washington's campaign tent trying to furiously scribble off letters to get money from Congress to pay for soldiers' shoes. He was there in councils of war, which were sometimes hot and muggy and filled with bugs or oftentimes dogs or horses. Um, it probably didn't smell very good. And so their experiences and their presentations of masculinity were very different. So when they got into the cabinet, what if you remember is that relatively small room, they just absolutely clashed. And um, in, in a letter in 1810 reflecting on that experience, Jefferson referred to them as um, two cocks locked in a fight. So that brings to mind a very bloody visceral experience. And this was something he learned from. He, he really believed that that conflict had been a negative part of Washington's administration. The regular cabinet meetings had prevented Washington from maintaining control over the conversations and the administration. And so when he was president, he was going to create a new system. And he wrote a letter to his secretaries in November of 1801, basically saying that they were going to stick to Washington's first term practices. So the cabinet would meet occasionally if there was a very big issue that required input on multiple departments. But then the rest of the issues would be dealt with through written correspondence and one on one meetings. And he did this for a couple of reasons. One, Washington. Jefferson really wanted to avoid the sort of conflict that did come up in Washington's cabinet. He personally hated um, that sort of confrontation, but he felt it could also undermine the administration's unity. Two, he wanted to maintain control over all details of the administration. And the best way to do that was to ensure that the secretaries weren't meeting without him. He also wanted to make sure that if they did meet, it would be productive. So he almost always knew what the secretaries thought before convening a cabinet meeting. And if he felt that they were going to be disagreeable, he would meet with them one on one. He also used the physical space of his private study, which at this point was in the White House or the executive mansion, as it was called, to sort of enforce that control and congeniality and the atmosphere that he wanted to cultivate. Um, so this is sort of a fanciful depiction, but it's not far off. He did have maps of the United States and particularly of the Louisiana territories on the wall. He had bones and stuffed specimens and skins that um, Meriwether and Lewis had sent back from their adventures. He had tons of books. He had plants that he personally tended to and created his pet mockingbird, you can see up in the air, would sometimes perch on his shoulder and take treats from his lips, which is an interesting tidbit about Jefferson. Um, but this space served a very important role. First, it was much larger, so it was going to be a more comfortable space. Um, it's not really pictured here, but he did have large tables set up for the secretaries to work on, so he didn't want them to feel cramped. And then finally, the space reflects his passions and his interests and his authority and his ownership of that space. So the maps on the wall showcased his greatest triumph as president, which was the Louisiana Purchase. The plants and the books and everything reminded the secretaries of who was in charge, who lived in the building and who had the final say. And we know that this messaging worked because Robert Smith, who was the secretary of the Navy, wrote in a letter to one of his um, family members that never has there been a moment where a president has had so much authority that he did not dare to bring forward a subject unless he already had Jefferson's approval. So 
Um, despite uh, that sort of air of authority, Jefferson actually was pretty successful. He had the least turnover in cabinet history. Um, they, while policies themselves weren't necessarily um, effective in the long term, like the embargo, the cabinet was a really effective tool for the administration to build consensus with Congress, to liaise with the public um, in terms on the international scales, representation. And so Jefferson really learned from Washington's cabinet and then made it his own. And that really demonstrates the flexibility of the institution and what is really possible with Washington's legacy and, and the precedent that he did establish. So thank you so much for listening. Um, again, I'm thrilled to answer your questions. Um, please feel free to enter them. And um, I look forward to hearing what you have to say. And uh, thank you again. Thank you, Lindsay. Fascinating. Uh, we've got a number of questions already in the queue. Wonderful. Uh, the first one uh, is particularly interesting because uh, it addresses uh, George Washington and his height, which is something that people always seem to be obsessed about. Um, uh, our viewer says in Ron Cherno's book, uh, he mentions that GW was six foot. Uh, what documentation or information do you have to indicate that he was over six foot, that he was six three? Sure. Well, there are, yeah, there are a couple of different um, there are a couple of different records that we are going off of at the time. One is his clothing. So there's the material culture evidence about the sizing and the measurements that he gave to tailors when he was purchasing sets of clothing. So, for example, his the suit that he purchased for his inauguration. Um, and then there's other sort of more tangential evidence, which is that um, as you know, as you sort of alluded to, there's this conversation about how tall and sort of imposing he was. And um, that doesn't take place if he's not significantly taller than sort of, you know, people next to him. And we do know that Jefferson was probably around six feet. So at the very least, Washington was probably taller than that. Um, and then the final piece is that his campaign tent um, during the war, he had his sort of commander in chief tent and they had to actually adjust the main entrance and add more fabric so that they could raise it because he couldn't get into it without having to really bend over. So um, it's certainly an indication. We don't know if it was exactly 6'3", but it's certainly an indication that his height was very unusual for the time. And I would like to say that just to kind of push back on the notion that this is um, you know, a silly detail or unimportant, um, of course, you know, looks and how one presents oneself matters, especially when we're talking about a leadership position. He was imposing and he captured people's attention. And that was one of the reasons he was able to carve out this sphere of influence in his leadership. Um, and lastly, you know, we think about today, we glorify athletes for their physical prowess and 18th century Americans were no different. Great, thanks. You mentioned uh, the importance of the role of the Secretary of State, uh, equal to or perhaps even superseding that of the Vice President. And one mm -hmm. viewer asked, um, can you talk about the changing role of the Vice President and their effect on the nature of the cabinet? This is a great question because it is one of the aspects of the presidency and the executive branch more broadly that is so fluid and um, so flexible. And that really comes from when we look at Article 2, it is so short, especially compared to Article 1. And so many of those details that are written down, um, so many, or excuse me, so many of the details that are required for day-to-day -day governing aren't written down. And so it, it was up to Washington to kind of fill out those fuzzy spaces. And the vice presidency is a great example there is no written guide to how they're supposed to interact and what that relationship is supposed to look like. And so um, with Washington and Adams, they, they do exchange a series of, of letters, especially early on about what best practices would be for the president's social interactions. Washington then sends Adams another series of letters in 1794, sort of asking for his input. Um, and they did socialize regularly. They went to the theater together. They went riding. Um, often uh, Washington would have weekly dinners and he would invite secretaries and justices and visiting dignitaries. And Adams was a frequent guest. 
So it's very possible that they talked about matters of state and sort of diplomacy um, at this point, but there's no written record of those conversations. Um, but I can say that there's also no written record that Adams ever attended a cabinet meeting. So for whatever reason, he was excluded from that sphere of decision making. And by and large, I think that's been the standard for presidents. Usually they're not particularly close with vice presidents. Um, they're usually selected for some sort of other political reason rather than a close relationship or expertise that would be helpful to the president. There are, of course, aberrations. Um, president Obama and Vice President Joe Biden had a very close relationship, but I would say that is more the exception than the rule. So your, your reference to um, documenting these meetings between the cabinet members uh, and sort of a, a follow-up reference to the, the, the wonderful reference of being in the room at, uh, for the play Hamilton, uh, one of our viewer asks, uh, who was taking notes? Who was recording what was what was happening, what was being said in these meetings? Great question. And I think that that gets at a much larger point about, you know, we know what happened in history because there is some record of it, whether it's archaeological, material culture, um, environmental or written um, or oral history. And so but by and large, white men have left the abundance of written records. And in the case of the cabinet, that is of course also true because the secretaries were all white men. Um, but for Washington's administration, Hamilton and Jefferson were the most vigorous note takers, which probably comes as no surprise to people who are familiar with their personalities. Um, they both kept copious notes about what was said, what was discussed, um, who took which position. And it's very helpful to compare the two to see how they differ or um, are similar. Um, occasionally, Tobias Lear would take notes if he was present at a meeting. He was sort of Washington's kind of like a chief of staff, but more like a chief private secretary um, sort of position. Um, and then occasionally Washington would leave letters or we often have written record of the questions that he wanted to ask to the secretaries. So that's a really good way to know when a meeting was taking place. Back to Secretary of State, one of the other luminaries during this period, of course, was Ben Franklin. Mm -hmm. uh, was he ever considered for that role? Um, no, he wasn't. He was very, very, very old, um, especially for the standards of the time by uh, 1787 during the Constitutional Convention. And he died only, I believe he died only one year into Washington's presidency. But um, he may have been, you know, tangentially sort of considered out of respect, but never really seriously because he was so old, he would have never taken the position. Um, so he was more of just considered a sort of a, a figurehead at the at the convention to give an air of authenticity to the um, endeavors. What's next for Lindsay Travinsky? You've just published a book. Yes. Um, well, I, I mean, in true historian fashion, I'm now thinking about my next book. Um, I cannot quite get cabinets out of my system yet. I think that they are the most fascinating and underappreciated way to evaluate um, a presidency and presidential leadership. When a cabinet is a really good cabinet, it tends to blend into the background and we don't really see it and we don't really pay attention to it and it's successes appear to be the president's successes. When a cabinet is bad or divisive or scandal ridden, then all of a sudden we notice it and it's in the news an awful lot. So I'm going to compare one of the best and worst cabinets in American history. I'm gonna look at John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Um, John Adams cabinet was borderline treasonous and uh, despite his best efforts and Thomas Jefferson's cabinet was incredibly effective and successful and so I think that will be a really interesting story and a way to look at their presidencies that most people haven't. Um, but it is also an evergreen story because it's really actually a tale of power and ego and ambition and how presidents manage those things at the highest levels of government, which um, is a ever ongoing constant situation. Sounds like a fascinating topic. We look forward to hearing about that some more.
someone did ask, uh, they were very impressed with some of the artwork that was mm -hmm. provided in your presentation. So they, they inquired whether or not there could be any um, links or, or references that uh, might be provided. Perhaps we can, we can post them or perhaps they're posted on your website that reference that. Um, yes, I would be happy to to post them. I can send you the PDF and I can make sure that there are citations included or links included. Most of the images and uh, portraits are um, in uh, the common domain, so you can find them on Wikipedia. Uh, this, for example, this, this last picture of Jefferson's private study is actually in the White House Historical Association collection. It was painted by Peter Waddell, but you can see it in their digital library. So I will be sure to provide links and we can get those, get those up online. Great, thank you. Uh, so again, folks, please go to uh, www.shopvirginiahistory.org slash the cabinet uh, to order Dr. Chavinsky's book. Uh, we thank you, Lindsay. And uh, we will see everybody again in August for our next banner lecture. In the meanwhile, please take care. Thanks so Thanks much. Thanks for everyone for being here.